I expect that, by now, most of you are tired of winter. I certainly am. It's a comfort that knowing in a couple of months' time there will be no more starting and finishing work in the dark, no more inability to wear shorts and t-shirts, but it doesn't stop you from trying now, and no more scraping frost off the windscreens, and no more black ice. I'm not sure if some of you heard, but I slept with some black ice the other day and flipped over my car, so I'm looking forward to that not happening. I thought I would begin today's message with a poem about winter. On December 31st, 1900, a man called Thomas Hardy, who was the author of the book Far From the Madding Crowd, which some of you might have heard of, stood by a gate and looked over the wintry English landscape before him. And he wrote a poem about what he saw and heard which became a sort of reflection on how the last century had gone. The poem is called The Darkling Thrush. I leant upon a coppice gate when frost was spectre grey and winter's drags made desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bindstones scored the sky like strings of broken lyre and all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. The land's sharp features seemed to be the century's corpse outland. Its crypt, the cloudy canopy, the wind, its death lament. The ancient pulse of germ and birth was shrunken hard and dry. And every spirit on the earth seemed fervorless as I. So as Hardy looks out at the cold, barren, lifeless landscape, he feels very depressed. And he compares the landscape to how the 19th century passed. A lot of things happened in that century, but overall it was a century of industrialization of people moving to cities for better opportunities and forgetting their countryside roots. And with improved technology came improved weaponry and more capacity for mankind to destroy itself and inflict suffering on itself. Thinking about this, you could say that the future looked pretty grim in December 1900. But then the poem takes an interesting turn as the poet hears an unlikely sound. At once a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead in a full-hearted, even song of joy illimited. An aged thrush, frail, gaunt and small, in blast-ruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. Such little cause for carolings and such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar or nigh around that I could think there trembled through his happy good night air some blessed hope whereof he knew and I was unaware.
in this bleak winter landscape, a tiny bird in the branches above is happily singing his heart out, and the poet has no idea why. Why is this frail little bird singing a happy song to a cold, lifeless world? At first, the poet finds it ridiculous and even laughable, but then he stops and thinks. What if this bird is so joyful because he knows something that I don't? What if he has some blessed hope which I just cannot see? That little bird represents us, the church, the community of the risen Lord Jesus. You see, the 19th century was a challenging time for the church as well as the world. It was a century which saw great missionaries and preachers, Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, to name a few. But it also saw one of the greatest decreases in church attendance of any century. And certainly the countless empty church buildings in this area are a testament to that. Thomas Hardy was brought up in the church, but as an adult, he drifted away. In particular, he read books such as On the Origin of Species by Charles Darwin, which led him to doubt the legitimacy of the Bible. And this left him with a rather grim outlook on life. If we're all just finite creatures, fighting for survival before we inevitably die, then what is the point in anything? The people who stayed in the church did not have this outlook. And when Hardy looked at them from the outside, he thought, surely you're all so naive to the situation of the world around you. Can't you see that we live in a meaningless, random world? You're like a bird singing a sweet summer song in the dead of winter. But then he stops and thinks, what if the people in those churches actually know something that I don't? What if they do indeed have some blessed hope? Friends, this is how the world outside those doors sees us. As a bird singing in winter. Singing with a strange joy in a world which seems to be going to pot. So what is our blessed hope? What is our reason to be joyful? To be honest, hope isn't a word we focus on all that often. As the preacher David Pawson says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the weakest of these is hope. And understanding biblical hope can be confusing because of how we use the word hope in English. In our language, hope always has some degree of uncertainty. I hope that I get the job means I don't know for certain that I'll get the job, but I longingly wish that I were getting. That's what hope means for us. In French, the word for hope is espoir. And the opposite of espoir is désespoir, which is where we get the word despair. Whatever hope is, despair is the opposite of that. And despair is a horrible thing to feel. That feeling of there being no light at the end of the tunnel, 
that feeling of how long do I have to keep this up for? I mean, what's the point really? Can't I just give up now? The past few months have been challenging in my work. I've been working for a charity down in Perthshire called Team Ranch. And over December we had this big Christmas event, which did a lot to help promote our ministry. Though we were very short-staffed, and our director insisted on getting the same amount of work done as last year, meaning at the end of period of preparation leading up, we were ending every day exhausted. Our boss got quite burnt out too, and because of this he was on a bit of a short fuse with all of us. And after the event was over, a young couple who had been living at the ranch for several years and had become an integral part of the workforce announced that they were leaving because they had burned out and had no fuel left in the tank, so to speak. At that time, I would say that whatever I was feeling was the opposite of hope. I felt despair for the ministry of the place and its ability to continue. And that was a challenge in my faith. I had to stop and question myself, what is my hope, my blessed hope? Can I have a hope which is stronger than just plain optimism? A hope which trusts that there are brighter days ahead, even if things get worse in the short term. Well, what makes the kind of hope the Bible talks about different from the way we talk about hope is certainty. Biblical hope is always certain. It's not just longing, wishful thinking. And because of this, biblical hope has a tight connection to faith. We see this particularly in the book of Hebrews, where the author uses the words faith and hope almost interchangeably. In one verse he talks about having the full assurance of faith, and in another verse he talks about having the full assurance of hope. And he even uses the word hope in the definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope, as the Bible sees it, is faith in the future tense. Faith can refer to things in the past and the present. For example, in verse 3 of Hebrews 11, by faith we understand that the universe was created by God. We can have faith in things that have already happened, such as God creating the world. But whenever faith applies to things in the future, you can call it hope. If we have faith that something will happen, then we have hope in it. Our faith is rewarded according to the legitimacy of the thing we put our faith in. If we had faith that we would survive jumping off Big Ben, then our faith would not be rewarded if put to the test. Likewise, the legitimacy of hope depends on what that hope is founded on. And this brings us to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul discusses what the Christian hope ultimately is. The object of that hope, which is a future resurrection of the dead, and the basis of that hope, which is the resurrection of one man, Jesus Christ. Now the church in Corinth came from a background of Greek thinking, in which every person 
was composed of a body and a soul. And the soul was sort of like a ghost in the machine. It was an immaterial, conscious entity which lived in the body. And when the body died, they got separated. So the body went into the ground and the soul went somewhere else. So for the Greeks, the idea of resurrection of the physical body coming back to life was just absurd. It was laughable. And because of this, the Christians in Corinth really struggled with the idea of resurrection. Paul is therefore writing this passage to address their doubts. The ultimate hope of Christianity is that one day everyone who has ever lived will be raised to life and then be judged. Those who have rejected Jesus will be judged according to their actions and face eternal punishment. And those who have been redeemed by Jesus will go on to enjoy the new creation. The reason we have this hope of rising from the dead is because Jesus was raised from the dead first as a guarantee of what was to come. If Jesus was in fact raised from the dead, then our hope is certain. The first thing Paul addresses is the certainty of the fact Jesus was raised from the dead. How do we know? Well, firstly, we know by the fact that there were Christians in Corinth at all. Historians don't debate the fact that Jesus walked on the earth and that he was crucified. First century historians such as Tacitus and Josephus testified to this. And if he was a great teacher and claimed to be someone special, and then he was killed and stayed dead, then you can guarantee his movement would not have gotten very far. It was not because of the power of his teachings alone, but the fact that the dead guy got out of his grave and started walking. It's because of that that the disciples had the courage to face persecution and death, taking that message to the ends of the earth. So the fact that there are Christians in Corinth at all is evidence of the resurrection. Secondly, we know by the scriptures. Paul explains that I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day according to the scriptures. Passages such as Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 describe the Messiah dying by crucifixion. They pierce my hands and my feet, and they cast lots for my garment. It's a very vivid picture. And we know about the resurrection from the scriptures, from Psalms like Psalm 16, where David talks about, you will not leave your Holy One to see the tombs decay. And Peter points this out when he speaks at Pentecost. He says, David did see decay. His body is still here and it's decaying. But when he said that, he was talking about the son of David, the Messiah, Jesus whose body did not see the day. And thirdly, we know by the fact that there were eyewitnesses. There is no stronger evidence in court than eyewitness testimony. If 500 people witnessed a crime scene and testified to it, there would be no doubt about it happening. Over 500 people witnessed the risen Jesus. And Paul even challenges the Corinthians about this. He says, they're still alive. Go and ask them. They just live down the road. 
And then he appeared to the other apostles. And then finally, he appeared to Paul as one abnormally born. What an interesting phrase. It's Paul saying, I was just born at the wrong time. What I would have given to have known Jesus in the flesh, to have been discipled by him in the flesh. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, he says. And next, Paul spells out the implications of this. If Jesus is, in fact, risen from the dead, then the implication is that we will one day be raised from the dead. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. That he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are really just a little bird naively singing to the cold winter air. But, in fact, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. We can be certain Jesus did rise from the dead, so we will also one day rise. The Christian hope is a hope which goes beyond the grave. But what will a resurrected body actually look like? What will it feel like? What about people who die in war and are blown to smithereens? What about people who have their ashes scattered in the ocean? What about people who end up in the ocean and the shark bites off one arm and swims in that direction, the shark bites off another arm and swims in that direction? What happens to them? Do they keep their bodies? Will they get new bodies? Paul explains more of this in the later verses. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? He says, how foolish. Egypt. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps wheat or something else. But God gives it a body, as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Think of the difference between an acorn and an oak tree. They're very different things, aren't they? They look very different. But they are somehow related. An acorn is something that people tread on on the street. It pulls off. People tread on it. Squirrels steal them and hoard them up for winter. Or do they actually? I don't know. But when you plant the acorn in the ground, when you bury it and it decomposes, there is a code within that acorn a code of something much, much greater. And give it time, and up comes something related, but entirely different. An oak tree, which stands above all the other trees of the meadow, and lasts for centuries, and sees generations go and go. 
so it is with our bodies. The resurrected body is related somehow to our body, but is glorified. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The Bible does not tell us that if we trust in Jesus, we will never encounter darkness in our lives. Trust me, friends, the darkness is real. It is unavoidable, and it cannot be overcome with a mere light-hearted optimism. But our comfort is that in that darkness, we have the presence of our Savior, and with him a hope that cannot be crushed. Though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, yet will I fear no evil. For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And in our perishable, dishonored, weak, natural bodies, we carry the hope of something greater, which will be revealed on that final day of resurrection. If we hold fast to this hope, then it will keep us through those times of darkness. There is a hope that burns within my heart, that gives me strength for every passing day. A glimpse of glory, now revealed in meager part, yet drives all doubt away. Through present sufferings, future's fear, he whispers courage in my ear, for I am safe in everlasting arms and they will lead me home. I love how Billy Graham describes this hope as a reservoir of emotional strength. That's what he calls it. And this is what he has to say about it. If I am put down, I look to the emotional reservoir of hope for the strength to return good for evil. Without hope, I have no power to absorb the wrong and walk in love, and I sink into self-pity or self-justification. If I experience a setback in my planning, I get sick, or things don't go the way I'd hoped for in the board meeting, for example. I look to the emotional reservoir of hope for the strength to keep going and not give up. If I face temptation, to be dishonest, to steal, to lie, or to lust. I look to the emotional reservoir of hope for the strength to hold fast to the way of righteousness and deny myself some brief, unsatisfying pleasure. That is the way it works for me. That is the way I fight for holiness in the Christian life. And I believe this is the biblical way to make our calling and election sure. When the outside world looks on us, they may see us as a tiny thrush singing a song of ill-informed joy in a cruel, indifferent world. But we do have a blessed hope.
and it is sure, as sure as the resurrection of our Lord. And because of this, we are not thrushes, but eagles, those who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Have you ever seen an eagle fly? My uncle Ken told me about one time he was kayaking across Loch Duich and a golden eagle swooped down on top of him. I've never experienced anything like that before. But I did once read an excerpt from the author Nan Shepherd. Uh, if you don't know her, she's on the five pound note. Uh, she often went walking in the Cairngorms, and there's this bit in one of her books which describes the flight of an eagle, and it's stuck with me ever since. Maybe as I read it, you can think of that future hope we have of resurrected bodies, of what we one day will be. The flight of the eagle, if less immediately exciting than that of the swifts, is more profoundly satisfying. The great spiral of his ascent, rising coil over coil in slow symmetry, has in its movement all the amplitude of space. And when he has soared to the top of his bent, there comes the level flight, as far as the eye can follow, straight, clean, and effortless as breathing. The wings hardly move. Now and then, perhaps a lazy flap, as though a cyclist, freewheeling on a gentle slope, turns the crank a time or two. The bird seems to float, but to float with a direct, undeviating force. It is only when one remarks that he is floating upwind that the magnitude of that force becomes apparent. I stood once about the 2,500 feet level in January when the world was quite white and watched an eagle well below me following up the river valley in search of food. He flew right into the wind. The wings were slightly tilted, but so far as I could judge from above, he held them steady. And he came on with a purposeful urgency behind which must have been the very terror of strength. Some birds of prey, I fear, can stay in the air for decades on end without ever having to touch the ground. I believe an albatross can stay off the ground for some 50 years. No need to come down whatsoever. It just stays up there, a creature of the sky. As you feel your own mortal body with its limitations, aging and growing weaker every day, just remember that future hope you have of a new body, of no more decay, no more darkness, and of eternity with Jesus our Lord. I'd like to finish with a verse from a Chinese chorus I heard once at the Chinese church in Edinburgh. <laughs> 因为凡事都有神的美意，我要赞美，真是到底。Roughly translated, 
I will confront my despair with a heart of hope. I will confront my depression with a heart of fullness. Because God's beautiful intent is in all things, I will praise him and I will press on to the end. Amen.